It's good to be here with you this morning. My name is Ross. If I have not met you yet, I get to serve here as family pastor, part of the preaching routine. Um, and um, our, I'm excited about continuing our series through First Timothy this morning. First uh, Timothy, if you have a Bible, you can turn uh, to First uh, Timothy chapter 5. And um, 5, we'll start in verse 17. Did I get my... Uh, slides up. Uh, We'll start in verse 17 of chapter 5. We're going to read through the end of the chapter, end of chapter 5, and then we'll also read the first two verses of chapter 6. Let me pray for our time, and then we will jump into God's Word. Let's pray. Father, would you, uh, by the power of your Word, through your Spirit, change us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, before we look at, these, uh, look at this uh, passage, I want us to remind us where we've been in 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul's aim in 1 Timothy has been to uh, instruct Timothy, who's his representative uh, to the church in Ephesus, as to how the church in Ephesus, how members of the church in Ephesus ought to conduct themselves, ought to behave as members of God's family, as members of the household of God. That's what the whole book of 1 Timothy is about. And last week in particular, we saw that uh, members, as members of God's family, we are to treat one another like family members because in Christ, we actually are family members, okay? And then in particular, we saw that we are to treat those who are most vulnerable in our family, in our community, with honor. Paul tells Timothy that we are to honor widows in our family. And um, we saw that in in chapter 5, verse 3. It says, honor widows who are in need or who are truly widows. And really, this theme of honor, it's going to continue on from last week into this week's uh, passage as well. It becomes kind of a major concept in chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Timothy. And, uh, and we'll, so we'll come back to it uh, uh, a, couple, a couple times, uh, a couple more times as we go. So for, in verse 3 of chapter 5 it says, honor those who are truly widows. Then in 17 it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Same word, honor. And then later on at the beginning of chapter 6 it says, servants are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Uh, So the family, we've been created, the gospel creates a family, and that family is to be marked by, in some senses, honor. We are to be a family of honor. Now that uh, might come into your ears sounding a little strange. Honor is not a word that we really use that often in our in our vocabulary, we, even when we think about our, our, uh, our Christian life, like what it means to grow as a follower of Jesus, you probably haven't said recently, I really need to grow in honor, right? You might have said, I need to grow in my ability to love one another, or I need to be able to forgive people, or I need to not be so angry, or I need to be more patient. You probably haven't said, I need to be more, better at honoring others. Uh, it's just not something that we really... Use It's not the, a, a way that we frame uh, our, our life around. But it's all over Scripture. Uh, just a couple passages in, in Romans. Uh, Romans. Paul, in Romans chapter 12, he, he tells us to outdo one another. That is, in, members of the family of God are to outdo one another in showing honor. It's the same word. Uh, 
And then in the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 7, Paul says, pay to all what is owed, taxes to whom taxes are owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So this is what the church should be known for. Uh, Every facet of our life together, all of our relationships, should be characterized by a sincere and a robust honor. Now, there are two pitfalls. I mentioned that it's not really a word that we use very often. So there are uh, uh, different misconceptions. There's primarily two misconceptions or pitfalls that we can fall into when we think about what it means to honor one another. And uh, firstly, we could say that to honor someone means that we never criticize them. Uh, So that's honor without accountability is the first pitfall. We could say with this view uh, to challenge someone, to question a decision that they make or to put a structure of accountability in place for them would be viewed as disrespectful, dishonoring and a failure to submit to the leaders that God has placed above you. But uh, and we see this all the time in like uh, religious groups or cults or even even Christian organizations where there's uh, a dynamic personality uh, leader who's just an engaging speaker, commanding, and, and the ability to lead well, uh, they, it's very easy for them to develop a culture around them in which that their decisions are never questioned, uh, all their actions are seen as uh, the actions that God is approving of and affirming. So any questioning, any criticism that they received is automatically dismissed uh, as dishonoring, okay? Uh, But when the church is marked by that kind of false honor, that, that pitfall of honor, it does incredible damage to the body of Christ. Leaders need criticism. They need to be critiqued. Some of you guys are like, yeah, Amy, and that's, that's my role in the body of Christ is to critique leaders. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but, but we need to do so in a way that we're, we can at the same time say I'm bringing a, a justifiable criticism, yet I'm doing so in a way that honors, uh, honors the person. So, uh, for example, my, my, one of the best ways that my wife honors me is by criticizing me. One of the best ways that she shows that she respects me is by coming to me when I've made a mistake and she says, hey, you know that way that you handled that situation with the kids? That didn't really seem to be the best decision. You could have done things a little bit different. I need that. I need that critique and that criticism. Uh, when, she, when I tell her what I, my plans for the weekend or something and she says, you know, that, that sounds like a good plan for you, but what your family needs right now is to, for you to do something different. I need that critique. I need that criticism because it makes me a better husband. It makes me a better father. It makes me a better person, a follower of Jesus. Lead, leaders need criticism. Uh, So that's the first pitfall is uh, honor without accountability. But there's the flip side, a second way in which we can twist the biblical concept of honor. And this is perhaps far more common in our society, way more prevalent in our our culture. We neglect honor. We have a weak view of honor. Um, And we devalue leaders in a way uh, that erodes healthy, robust, godly leadership. And I think as Alaskans, we are particularly vulnerable uh, to this trap. Right? We pride ourselves in being independent. We pride ourselves in being free thinking and self-sufficient. Uh, and so we naturally, just our default mode is to view those with titles, those with positions of honor or authority, uh, with suspicion. That's just the way we assume that if they're in leadership, they're high up, they're probably corrupt 
or, they, or you know, maybe not intentionally, but somehow they've gotten there through corrupt means, or they're incompetent, right? Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're a leader and they're really, we can't trust them because they're not as, as smart as we are. Uh, and that's in part why a lot of people end up in Alaska, right? Because we want to get away from corrupt incompetence. We want to get away from that, uh, 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 those, those people who are honorable, right? Can, and can anybody kind of identify with that, that mood? Like it's kind of nice to be removed away because we're a little bit further away from incompetency and, and corruption and stuff like that, at least to an extent. Um, and this is in part understandable. Right? We've seen a lot of so-called honorable people turn and abuse their power, their authority, and their influence in dishonorable ways. Uh, but when we bring this suspicion of leadership into the church, it creates a problem. When we devalue good leaders and good leadership, we're actually hurting ourselves. Failure to honor one another biblically leads to division within the church. Uh, it, leads, it creates a church without direction. It creates a church without godly examples to look up to because when you're constantly su- being suspicious of leaders or tearing down leaders uh, by the way that you talk about leaders in your, in your home, then who are our, uh, who's the next generation looking up to as an, as an example? So those are two pitfalls, two misconceptions, honor without accountability and then honor, uh, weak, weak honor. But these two pitfalls are fueled, they're exacerbated by our own sin, right? Biblical honor is so difficult to pursue because we don't want to outdo showing honor to one another. We want others to outdo themselves in showing honor to us, right? So in contrast to the, to the two pitfalls of the world and in contrast to our own flesh and our own arrogance, this is the kind of, of, of biblical honor that I think scripture calls us to. And this is how, I'm gonna, how we're going to define biblical honor as we, as we move forward. Biblical honor is using our time, resources, speech, and actions in a way that affirms a person's dignity and worth in light of the gospel. Biblical honor means using our time, resources, speech, and actions in a way that affirms a person's dignity and worth in light of the gospel. And this is why we can say as Christians we are to honor all people. Because all people have been given dignity and worth because we're made in God's image. Yet this is also not a small task. This is, by definition, impossible for us to do. Showing this kind of biblical, robust, all-encompassing honor where we uh, is, is impossible. I don't want to use my time, my resources, my speech and actions to affirm other people. I want to use those things to affirm myself and my own value, my own worth. And so here's the thing, even before we jump into scripture, here's what we need to know about biblical honor. Only the grace of God that's been poured out in the person and work of Christ on the cross can enable you and I to honor others as we ought. And what's more is that only the grace of the gospel can take this family of sinners and failures and dishonorable people who have been uh, and and empower us to create a culture in which biblical honor is just part of the air that we breathe and the water that we swim in 
That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel does. It takes sinners and failures and and people who have been rejected by the world, unimpressive people like you and like me, people who have been uh, rejected and devalued by the world, dishonored by their own sin and the sins that others have placed on them, and it raises them up and gives them the honor, the dignity, and the worth of Christ himself. That's what the gospel is. If you're here and and you... uh, you don't know what you think about Jesus, or maybe you're here and you know for sure that you're not, you're not trusting in Jesus. This is the gospel that we want you desperately to come and find and enjoy. The, 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 the gospel that says, in Christ, he took on the shame and dishonor of death on a tree that you and I rightfully deserved. Our sin is a disgrace. Our sin is shameful, yet Christ took our place. And in his death, the the dishonor that we earned for ourselves, it's been removed. It's been lifted off of us. Yet he also didn't just die. He rose from the dead. And in doing so, he purchased for us real honor, real dignity in place of our shame. And not because of anything honorable in us, not because of anything we bring to the table, but because of his own goodness. And now we who have been freely raised to a place of honor. We've been welcomed in and seated at his table with him. Now we have been raised to a place of honor, can turn and freely show honor to others. That's the only way. That's the only way we as a church family can be marked by real, robust, sincere honor is by remembering and recognizing that we have been honored ourselves through Christ. So when a family gets this, then we can show honor in a way that is uniquely shaped by the gospel. A church that is gripped by the gospel will truly outdo one another in in showing honor. And here's why. It's because only because we know that the depth, only because we know the depth of our sin can we be honest about the sin of those in authority and hold them accountable to that. Only when we recognize our own, the depth of our own sin can we be honest about the sin of those in, in leadership. And at the same time, because we know the free dignity that's offered in the gospel and its transforming power, we can hold up and respect our human leaders, not as infallible or anything honorable in themselves because of the the free honor that's been placed on them through Christ. You see, the gospel says that we're all sinners, we're all corrupt, we're all twisted, so there needs to be checks and balances in place. Yet the gospel also says that God's grace transforms sinful people and in that grace he has placed sinful people in positions of authority to be used for good so we can affirm God's goodness in their lives. So the church is to be a family of honor and a church marked by biblical honor will stand out to the world by the way uh, we talk about one another. Uh, The way we talk about uh, other people and other members of our family to our face is going to be the same as the way we talk about them behind their back when they're not around. I've been, as I've been preparing for this week, that's an area that's particularly been convicting of me, is the way that I talk about someone to their face the same way that I talk about them when they're not around. We'll be also marked not by just our speech, but the way we serve one another. Our pursuit of biblical honor should change the way that we, uh, our mindset when we come into a gathering, whether it be on a Sunday morning or uh, a Wednesday night or a community group. Our mindset changes. If we're seeking, okay, how can, I, how can I biblically honor other members of my family? Our mindset's gonna change from what can I get out of this Bible study or get out of this worship service? How can this make me feel good or meet my needs? Into 
going in, how, who's someone who I can affirm in light of the gospel? Who, who can, how can I serve another and build up another uh, rather than seeking to get my needs met? This is a radical reshifting of the way we think about one another. This is what the gospel produces in a family. And so, and I've said that all, all before getting into our scripture this morning, because in our, in our passage this morning, what we're going to see is that Paul takes this principle of honor and he applies it specifically to leaders, how the church is to uh, engage and, and respond to its leaders, the, the elders in a, in a church. But, but the way we relate to our leaders is just part of the way uh, that we are to relate to one another in a culture and a family marked by real, sincere honor. Okay? So as we, as we transition out of our passage, uh, we're going to see four aspects of biblical honor that we need to take note of. And you can see them in the sermon notes in your, in your bulletins. Four aspects of biblical honor. First one is biblical honor rewards hard work. Biblical honor rewards hard work. So let's read 1 Timothy 5, uh, 17 through 18. Uh, 17 and 18, just two verses. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages. All right, so Paul starts off by saying, uh, biblical honor is going to shape a church, uh, uh, and it's going to be evident if the elders in the church are receiving double honor or receiving honor. And here are three things that I want uh, to, there's three things I think that from these two verses that we need to draw out. Firstly, what does it mean to rule well, right? Uh, we're not supposed to show double honor to any, just any elder. We're supposed to show honor, double honor to elders who rule well. And, uh, what, and we've, we saw that word rule or lead or, uh, or manage uh, uh, two, two chapters ago in chapter 3 when Paul was listing the qualifications for elders. There we're told that, in, uh, that a qualified elder manages his household well. Manages his household well. That's the same word for rule, manage, lead, direct. And so here we, we see that that same term is applied to an elder's leadership in the church. Elders are to lead the church like it was their family. Right? Not, not like a political leader, not like a business leader or, or an executive or anything like that. They're to lead it like a family. Okay? Uh, and they should do so with excellence. It should be evident. It should be marked. Like that person cares for and leads well. It's, 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 we, we should be able to say that of, of, of our elders. And uh, these elders are going to be noticeable. The, the way they devote themselves to loving and leading the church and caring for its people will stand out. And so, uh, and, and those who perform their role should be worthy of double honor, okay? And that's, that's the second question that I want us to ask. What does that mean? What does double honor mean? I have never uh, said that phrase uh, before outside of reading scripture. And there are two elements that I think of honor that Paul is getting at here. Firstly, respect so we're to esteem our elders, we're to hold them in high regard, we're to think about them well and talk about them well, but also remuneration, uh, and that is financial compensation. So good elders should be held in, in high regard, but then notice how he unpacks that in verse 18. It says, do not muzzle the ox, do not muzzle an ox. And here he draws from uh, the Old Testament law, specifically Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, 
And it's, it's an image from the farm. It's an image, if, if a farmer were to muzzle his ox while treading out the grain, while plowing, uh, what he was doing is trying to keep the ox from eating the grain. He was trying to save that grain. He's like, no, no, that grain's not for you to eat while you're working. That grain's for me. I want to make as much money or get, collect as much grain as I can. So, so this is a farmer's way of being stingy with his animals, with his livestock. Uh, he wanted to preserve as much grain as he could for himself. Uh, and, but the law is saying, don't be stingy with your animals. Reward them for their work and the food, with the food that they need. And, and the food that the ox would get while it's plowing, while it's treading out, it would sustain them. It would give them the energy that they need to keep going so they could plow all day long and do well. Um, and uh, so, uh, yeah, so by keeping them from doing that, you would be hindering them from doing their job. And Paul picks up on this image and he says, if that applies to how we should treat a farm animal, then that certainly should apply to how we treat our elders, our teachers. And then he quotes the saying of Jesus. He says, uh, scripture also says, Jesus, the book of Luke, uh, chapter 10, verse 7 says, the laborer deserves his wages. And in the context here, uh, Jesus has just sent out 72 disciples, 72 apostles to go preach the gospel, to go imitate and, and, and replicate Jesus' own ministry. And he's, you're gonna be, he says, you're going to be traveling around from town to town in Galilee and uh, all over the place. And as you go from town to town, preaching and, and, and ministering to people, uh, it's okay for them to give you what you need to live, to food and housing. You should receive that because you're worth your wages. Uh, uh, you should have what you need. It's appropriate for that. A preacher and a teacher of the gospel is to be able to vote, is to be able to devote their lives to that work. They are to be able to serve in a way that with, uh, without having to worry about where their next meal is going to come from or how they're going to provide for their family. And this is, I think, what he means by double honor. It doesn't mean pay a leader, uh, an elder double salary or uh, think about them twice as highly as you currently are, but it's, it's this idea of respect and compensation, meeting their needs. Uh, it means that a congregation ought to be generous toward its elders, and they are to ensure that their needs are met and that they lack nothing. Uh, but then thirdly, he narrows it a little bit. He says, especially those who labor in teaching and preaching. Okay, so in other words, all, all elders are to rule well. All elders are to be able to teach and devote themselves to the leading and care for the body. But then there are some elders who are particularly devoted to teaching and preaching in, uh, the word of God in a way that other elders are not devoted to that. And it's these elders, those who are, are devoted to laboring and teaching and preaching, who are to be especially compensated financially for their work. That's what the Bible says. It's, it's right there. So, and this is really the, uh, the model that we try to follow at Peninsula Grace. We want all of our elders to rule well. And we want all of them to be held accountable to that standard. Uh, we want all of them to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer and to caring for the members of the family. Yet there are certain elders, namely Justin and myself and, and Danny, Lord willing, in a couple months, who have been tasked especially with devoting ourselves to the hard work of teaching and preaching. And this is what, this is what you pay us to do, right? To, to labor in teaching and preaching. Notice it doesn't say anything about planning events or leading a great production or anything like that. It, we are to commit our energy toward, uh, toward studying and preparation as well as proclaiming and explaining God's word. And this takes place on Sunday mornings, certainly. It takes place in classes with our youth group and one-on-one -on -one settings and trainings and in small groups. 
This is, this is what we are to do. Uh, um, and this is what you are to hold us accountable to do, is to labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, and that word labor is also drawn from the, from the farm, from agriculture as well. It's, it's the idea of getting your hands dirty in the dirt, toiling over through teaching, uh, through the God's word. Okay? So that's the first thing that we learn about, about biblical honor, is that biblical honor rewards hard work. Secondly, biblical honor takes sin seriously. Biblical honor takes sin seriously. Look at verses 19 through 21. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, do, doing nothing from partiality. That's fun. So we take sin seriously. But then notice that Paul says that Sin can take many forms in the church. Paul assumes that there are going to be those who sin by falsely accusing elders. Presumably this is what was going on in Ephesus. There were those in Ephesus who wanted to take down their, the, the leaders there by, by bringing false accusations of sin or false teaching or whatever it would, would have been. Uh, so, uh, so part of the way that we, especially as members of Peninsula Grace, part of the w- way that we as members of Peninsula Grace can honor our elders is not by believing every rumor or a- accusation that we hear about them. Paul says that a church can't function like that. There has to be a level of trust that we have for our leaders. Uh, so there needs to be multiple angles, multiple witnesses affirming Uh, affirming before we entertain accusations. At the same time, Paul says that leaders are not above sinning themselves. And when when an elder is continuing uh, and persisting in sin, we are to to rebuke them. That is, after they've been confronted, after it's been verified that, yeah, they're actually doing this, this isn't just rumors, um, but this is confirmed, and they've been confronted and they refuse to repent, what's to happen? We're there to be rebuked in the presence of all. And, and Justin said it last week, but that word rebuke literally means to expose, to bring it to light, to bring out sin into the light. And then with an eye toward calling them, challenging them to turn from their sin. or to take it to the whole church. Uh, uh, in the presence of the whole church so that the whole church can take note. So to honor our leaders means that we take sin seriously. But when we're realistic about the messiness of sin in the church family, we realize that sin can come from two directions, either the leader or the one being led. And when a leader clings to unrepentant sin, we are to deal with that sin seriously. So we don't let unverified rumors damage people's reputations, but we also don't let sin slide under the rug. And unfortunately, I think both of these two principles are completely countercultural. On the one hand, our culture is marked by frenzied anxiety about the failings and, and abuses of, of leaders. And, uh, uh, and, and w- there, there's, no, there's no trust in our, in our culture, we, and, we, uh, and, a, and a society can't function like that. Yet at the same time, we are... Uh, we're to boldly condemn sin, and that's super countercultural. How, how often do we see, do we find out uh, 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 down the road that there's been abuse and, and scandal and sin that's been covered up and swept under the rug for decades and years? 
and people have failed to hear, to, to respond to accusations and allegations and sins in an appropriate way. And this is only possible, being countercultural in this way, pressing against our culture from both sides is only possible when we care more about what God thinks than what man thinks. And so Paul says, in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ, in the presence of the angels, do this without partiality. Some leaders in the church have clout and standing. To publicly rebuke their sin would be incredibly costly, socially. Right? In other situations, it might be socially advantageous to quickly condemn an elder, to say, oh, I heard a rumor about this guy, he's out, uh, because uh, you know that, uh, that it's not going to cost you much. Uh, to, to bring that, that forth. So both of these impulses go against God's just character. And we are to conduct the affairs of the church as though we were doing so before the face of God himself. That's the, that's the old Puritan phrase, before the face of God himself. That's how we're to live our life, because we are. So may we at Peninsula Grace have the guts to do both of these things well. Now, on the, uh, on the next point, in, in verses 22 through 25, Paul, Paul says the third aspect of biblical honor. Biblical honor refuses to rush. So let's read 22 through 25. He says, Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder, and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. All right. So there's a a couple reasons why I think we could imagine why Timothy might be tempted to rush to lay hands on or to rush to uh, to appoint someone as an elder. Um, uh, Firstly, he could uh, maybe maybe he's feeling pressure from Paul to say, hey, I got to get this church up and running, so we need leaders to be able to do this, so I got to train up leaders and get them going so that I can like, succeed in my job of getting the church at Ephesus back on its right feet. Or, on the other hand, maybe it's uh, Timothy saying, hey, there's a lot of really gifted guys here who, are, who, who I gel with well, they seem like good dudes, let's get them in leadership roles because it would be really great to work with them. Right? And Paul is saying, you, you need to be cautious on both of those fronts. There's no pressure to rush into it. There's no, there's no, uh, and, and we need to be cautious about who we think naturally, uh, uh, and, uh, first blush, might make a good leader. So uh, Paul says, resist that temptation, refuse to rush into things. And in verses 24 and 25 is where he unpacks that. He says, the sins of some are obvious, or your translation might say conspicuous. They, they precede them to judgment. In other words, that when a person dies and they stand before God as a judge, uh, there are some people who that's not going to be a really great surprise how that goes, right? You can just, the way they've been living their life, it's been pretty obvious. There's other people who are very, very good at hiding their sins, right? There, there are other people who, uh, we, we know people like this, uh, uh, they seem gifted on the surface, they're good People, uh, they're great to interact with in, 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 in large, when, when, when other people are around, but over time, their character is revealed. And over time, even, maybe even it takes a long time, their secret hidden sins that maybe even their wife didn't even know about comes to light. 
we're really good at hiding sin, and we need to be uh, cautious. So right now, even, we're praying that Peninsula Grace, that there would be more qualified men who serve as elders here. We're, we're asking God for that. We would even ask that, as mem- that members of Peninsula Grace would nominate men who, who are evidently, obviously qualified men, godly men who love God's word, love God's people, and would, that you would nominate them to, to serve as, as elders. We're looking for that. We, we have a congregational meeting at the in the, this spring that's coming up and we pray that God would allow us to bring more men onto the team. We, we want as many godly, as qualified elders as possible. Yet at the same time, we would much rather be patient about bringing a new elder on the team than to be naive about sin and find out later that their lack of qualifications actually end up deeply hurting our church family. So that's why one of the things we do to kind of... Uh, uh, provide us with this caution is by having a, most of our elders go through a, 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 a elder in training year. So they're, 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 uh, they're brought on the team, but they're not officially an elder for a whole year to allow us the time to get to know them and to see how they interact with people, to see how they lead uh, for, for a year. And then after that year process, or sometimes it's more than that, after a year process, they would, they would be affirmed as elders. That that's helps us to be cautious about rushing into laying uh, on of hands. Uh, uh, laying on of hands and appointing, commissioning men as elders. So Paul also tells Timothy that he is not to partake in the sins of others, right? So when we install a man as an elder, we are affirming and endorsing their character and their testimony. So we want to be especially careful that we're not endorsing a lifestyle that's contrary to the gospel. And then in verse 23, he says something that seems a little bit random. Uh, Did you notice that? He says, keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine. Where'd that come from? Well, here's, uh, it seems like a left turn, but here's, uh, here's the logic of what he's trying to say. He's saying, I want you to keep yourself pure. Don't participate, don't partake in the sins of others. Like, like don't be getting, getting drunk and carousing and hanging out with, uh, uh, with, with and associating with those kind of people, installing, bring, bringing those kind of people on the elders. But by that, I don't mean you have to totally abstain from alcohol. There's nothing inherently, objectively sinful about Alcohol. Take a little wine with your uh, drink. A little wine uh, for the uh, for the sake of your frequent illnesses. And in the first century, this is just a, a thing that happened. They, you don't have access to good drinking water, so when you're only drinking water, it's gonna mess your digestive system up. Uh, in a lot of a lot of times, so Paul's just giving some good common sense medical advice. Drink a little wine. Alcohol will uh, and and actually. Uh, I mean, today they, people say if you drink small amounts of red wine, it's actually good to promote uh, gut health. So, um, so that's just common sense advice is what he's saying. So on the one hand, Timothy's uh, uh, desire is commendable. He doesn't want to uh, do anything to hinder the gospel's credibility. He's, he's refraining from drinking alcohol, so he's not damaging the gospel's reputation. Uh, he doesn't want to be associated with those who are drunk or apparently la- lack self-control. Um, but on the other hand, Paul says, uh, you need to do, do, take some precautions so that you can persist in gospel ministry for a long time. Um, and it's, I think it's worth asking the question for us, uh, what, what's your relationship with alcohol like? Uh, can you, do, you, do you share the same desires as Paul and Timothy? Here, can you honestly say that you consume alcohol in the way that you do for the sake of the gospel? Or is there something else that's driving you to alcohol? 
But on the flip side, Paul says there's nothing inherently or objectively sinful about alcohol. Sometimes it's completely appropriate. So we can go to either extreme. But, to be on, but we need to be honest with ourselves and with God about our motives. All right. So we don't rush into laying, uh, to appointing uh, elders. We don't rush into identifying with the lifestyles of others. But thirdly, we see, or fourthly, we see that biblical honor respects earthly authority. Biblical honor respects earthly authority. And now we jump into chapter 6, and you'll notice in these two verses, we're no longer talking about elders. Again, we're broadening out. We're seeing that the church is to be marked by honor generally, not just of elders. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the, I, Paul takes the idea of honoring leadership and he applies it to another group of people. So we'll read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. It says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be respectful, must, uh, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. All right, now I read that, and maybe uh, it was similar for you. I read that, and this passage rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Um, he, he brings up the talk, topic of slavery, and I assume that the Christian thing for Paul to do here would be to outright reject and condemn slavery and condemn slave uh, holders, slave masters. But that's not what Paul does here. So how do we make sense with that? How do we reconcile what Paul's saying here about slavery and the gospel? Well, a couple things that need to be said. Firstly, there's been slavery for as long as there has been human civilization. You, uh, just human history uh, uh, proves that anywhere you find civilization, you find slavery or it's dependent upon slavery. There's slavery today. There's slavery uh, from the beginning of, of human civilization. Um, uh, but there are a lot of different kinds of slavery. What, what comes to our mind is, when we think of slavery is influenced by our culture. We, our, our minds often go to, um, go to uh, eight, eight, 17th, eight, 1700s, American South, race-based chattel slavery that was dependent upon the transatlantic slavery. Uh, but slavery in the first century Rome was not like that. It wasn't based on race. Uh, it, it, and, it, and it wasn't a chattel slavery in the sense that uh, people weren't sold uh, as life into, into lifetime bondage in the same way um, uh, like like they like they were in um, like they were in the American South. Um, nor were masters allowed to treat their slaves however they liked. And slaves were commonly freed once they paid the debt, once the, the debt that they owed had been paid. Yet at the same time, Paul never endorses any form of slavery. Uh, he, he encourages slaves to gain their freedom when they can. He encourages slave masters and other places to free their slaves. Um, and, uh, and certainly Paul would have, again, have condemned American slavery outright. But really, the, the, the slave-to-slave-master relationship of the first century is more comparable to the employer-employee relationship of our day, not the, not the uh, slavery of the American South, right? So it's, uh, we, uh, we're here taking note of our relationship with those in earthly authority over us, our employers, uh, those who, have, uh, who we are dependent upon economically or, or financially. So, and no one here, I, 
I would assume, would consider yourself a literal slave, although some people have felt like slaves at work sometimes. Uh, but many of us know to be at what it's like to be at a job that we'd rather not have or to be working for an employer that we'd rather not be working for. Uh, and we are to give those people in positions of authority all honor, is what it says. So how do you talk about your boss when she's not around? Does the work ethic that you bring to your job reflect honor? Or are you just doing enough just to get by? And this should be, Paul says, this should be especially true if your boss is a believer. Because you're not just working hard to benefit just some random dude. You're working hard to benefit a member of your own family, a brother in Christ. Um, biblical honor is marked by that kind of respect. <clears throat> this, uh, one of the, we're remodeling our house my, uh, right now. And one of the projects that we're working on is we're removing a wall upstairs um, and uh, but it's a load-bearing wall, so that's going to place in a couple different areas particular more increased load on, in the downstairs wall. So we're, what we're having to do is reinforce the downstairs walls in those places so that it can bear the load uh, that's going to be placed on it more concentrated way uh, from the upstairs load, okay? So I, some, uh, some good advice from some of my, uh, from, the, from the Brown family. Um, and uh, told me what to do, and then my dad was over here helping me, uh, over there helping me yesterday, reinforce these walls by putting in some, some extra posts in the wall so that I could better handle the load that's going to be placed on it. As I was thinking about that, as we were putting in these posts in there and, and, and strengthening a, a door frame, like I was thinking, that is exactly what the, this is what the church of God is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be recognizing uh, the loads that are being placed on people and rushing in to reinforce, to strengthen, and to build up those who are carrying weight. Some of those, some of those are going to be leaders who are carrying a particular amount of weight, but all of us go through seasons in which we're carrying loads, we're carrying weights, and we need to be reinforced. We need to be strengthened and empowered. We need to be built up and affirmed and honored by those in our family in the same way that we would reinforce and strengthen a structure. This past week, we discussed this passage as elders on Tuesday mornings, uh, like we do every Tuesday morning. And one of the major themes that came out of this discussion was at the end of verse 1. Uh, it says, we honor authority so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. I think Drew was the one who kind of emphasized this for us. And the, 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 we, we honor authority so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. The, the family of God within a local church should be pursuing the kinds of relationships with one another that are completely countercultural. What other organization has such a beautiful and profound vision for building a culture of honor, a family in which it's normal and everyday for us to be open and honest and frank about the, about the sins and the failings of, 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 of our leaders, and for, uh, where we recognize that sin runs deep in each one of us? Yet at the same time uh, is a family in which that's marked by a deep respect and dignity for all, where we recognize the good blessing of strong and hardworking, faithful, godly leadership. This is a powerful vision for our family here. Yet as, a, as beautiful as, a, as, as true biblical honor is, it's extremely rare. 
So we're pursuing that together wholeheartedly. This is, this is where we want to grow. This is where we want to head. So as we close, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that um, as we go forward, our life together as family would be marked and shaped by the grace that's offered in your gospel that lifts up unimpressive, dishonorable, disgraced men and women and places on them the free dignity and worth and value of Christ himself. And would that gospel color and shape and change all of our relationships with one another? so that you might be glorified and so that we might have find joy in you. Would you now be pleased as we sing back to you songs of praise. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.